Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The summer lead up to the monsoon is often the busiest time for wildfires in Arizona, and this year has been no exception. This week, we look at how to prevent and fight wildfires. While fire has dotted the landscape long before we were in Arizona, it's mostly a human-caused phenomenon at this point in our history. The Arizona Department of Forestry and Fire Management says that 80% of the state's wildfires in 2020 were caused by people. Don Falk is a professor in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona. He says fire has always been a part of being human. We as humans have a very ancient relationship with fire, going back almost before we were Homo sapiens. There's evidence that even our pre-hominin ancestors had mastered fire and were using it, and that that is actually one of the factors that accelerated the evolution of our species. So let's think of ourselves as not having a new relationship, but having a very ancient relationship. My colleague, Steve Pine, at Arizona State University calls humanity a fire creature. And in many respects, that's a very good way of thinking of how our cultures have evolved. Last year, you know, the state said most of the wildland fires in Arizona were caused by humans. Is that typical looking back over history? Historically, it's actually not new at all for humans to be starting a high proportion of wildfires. If we look back historically, people before who were here before the arrival of, of Europeans were using fire on, on an almost daily basis in their lives. They were setting fires to improve hunting, for forage, for travel. And of course, they would use fire to clear brush away from their settlement. When you say people have been contributing to fire regimes for thousands of years, often now fire is viewed as destructive. Were they the same magnitude and size, if we know, and were they as destructive as we view them now? We have a pretty good idea of the kind of severity that was produced by historical fires. And of course, there's no single answer that covers this in all parts of the United States, but certainly here in the Southwest, the tree ring record, the charcoal record, and our documentary and cultural records indicate that the vast majority of fires are what we would call low severity. That means they'd be burning grass and shrubs and small woody fuels on the ground, but infrequently getting up into the canopy. So this means that the we had a kind of fire here in the Southwest that we don't see anymore. And that is a very large spreading fire covering possibly tens of thousands of acres in a season, but burning at a very low severity where they were not having the kinds of impacts we have. We don't see those fires anymore because they were burning in moderate conditions and we're good at putting them out. We also very often hear that fire ecologically, not on the desert floor, but in other areas is good. So are fires still good? Because it sounds like the, the nature of fires have changed over history. It is the nature of fire that has changed, and that is a key difference. These low-severity spreading landscape fires that were historically occurring, and by the way, those were set not only by people but by lightning. So between these two causes of ignition, 
the evidence suggests that fires were burning very frequently. And what that means is that those surface fuels, the grasses and brush and the young trees were being cleared out, reduced in density. And so you had less accumulated fuel at any given time um, in the forest and woodlands and savannas. So that maintained those ecosystems in a more open and sustainable and healthy state. There was enough water to go around. Trees weren't competing for water as much as they are. And when fire came along, there was less fuel to burn. So now fast forward to say around the early 1900s, which is when we really began to change fire regimes here in the Southwest. And you've got almost a hundred years of fire being excluded from the landscape by a variety of, of methods. And that allowed those fuels to accumulate. So there are now orders of magnitude, more fuel available to burn. And what that means is that when fire happens, it is an ecologically more destructive fire. And that doesn't mean that an ecosystem can't recover from it. But if the soils are severely damaged, you have huge flooding and soil erosion and loss of any source of living trees to provide seeds to regrow a burned area it's gonna take a lot longer for those areas to recover. And it's really kind of an open scientific question whether they will recover. It's interesting you said that the nature of fire kind of changed around 1900, which makes sense as more population was coming in and we were doing different things. So the changing nature of fire is not new. What's new, I guess, is additional issues like climate change and drought. So the changes that we set in motion here in the Southwest began a, a little more than 100 years ago, well before the modern era of climate change. And we understand those causes very well. They include the building of the rail system. That was an enormous change in the Southwestern economy, which previously to that had been very localized. So that all happened well before the era of climate change. Now you map that onto the undoubted effects of climate change on the way fire is burning today. And these two things kind of multiply out. And when you multiply the increased fuels by the increased flammability and extreme fire weather caused by climate change, that gives you the kinds of things we're seeing today. When it comes to human-caused fires versus natural fires caused by lightning, can we see any difference in what those fires look like over the historic record? This is a very active area of research, and it's showing some very interesting things. Recent studies indicate that 85% um, uh, of all wildfires in the United States in the last 30 years have been caused by people. So there's a huge uptick in just the number of fires caused by humans. Why is that happening? Well, it's happening in two ways. One is the spreading of large metropolitan areas, think Los Angeles, into areas that have a very flammable ecosystem, think Chaparral. And so as big cities spread out into those areas, eventually they reach a contact point, which we call the wildland urban interface. And now you have millions of people living right in close proximity with a highly flammable ecosystem. And in California alone, there's been an order magnitude increase in the number of fires just because they're being set by people. 
But the change is not only in the urban areas, it's also happening in more remote areas where more people are building second homes or increasingly even working remotely. Um, and so not having to live in a city, they can live out in the middle of the woods and provided they've got an internet signal, they can connect to their job anywhere in the world. That has led to an increase in this wildland urban interface, but not in big urban conurbations, but actually out into more remote areas. And again, when you build roads and you introduce people, um, you introduce fire. It's also true that of the fires that threaten people's homes, almost all of them, 97% of the fires that threaten, that burn down homes were started by people. So we're essentially burning down our own infrastructure. There are occasional lightning fires that do this, but the vast majority of fires that are burning down communities were started ironically, by people. There's been a change in the theory of fighting wildland fires. The idea used to be, put them out, don't let them burn, which then caused some ecological problems, so now it's more kind of steer them, control them, if possible, for ecological reasons, because fire is part of many different uh, ecologic areas. As we move more and more into that urban interface and people, as you said, working remotely, as long as they've got good internet, can go live out in the woods, do you think there's going to be a switch back to firefighting theory to suppression? It's a very tough paradox, Christopher, because you can't simply say, we're just going to back off and let fire do whatever it would like to do. There was a period of time when that the fire community was moving in that direction to enable fire to get back into ecosystems where it belongs and to do its work, which eventually makes fire less destructive. It's happening more frequently than they're going to be less destructive fires. But there's no question that this increasing perforation of our large ecosystem areas by roads and houses and other infrastructure makes it difficult to pull off that strategy because there's always somebody's house around the corner. We did an analysis of one of the districts um, up near Payson in the National Forest, in the Tonto National Forest, and looked at the private inholdings within that district. And we found that until you got out to the far western end of it, you were never more than three miles from somebody's house. That's pretty close quarters for being able to let fire run across that landscape. It's worth saying also in this context that there are areas where land managers and fire managers are getting it right. And they are very important examples that show us that it is possible to get the system into a new state. The Gila Wilderness and the Rincon Mountains are two great examples of those where fire is managed with less of a suppression emphasis. In the Gila, there are two fires that have occurred in, the, in recent years. The Miller fire in 2011 and the Johnson fire in 2020, both of these fires burned 90 to 100,000 acres. Nobody has ever heard of them, at least nobody in the public. Why is that? Because they didn't burn down anybody's house, they weren't causing massive destruction. And the reason those happen in the Gila in that part of the Gila, is that the Gila managers have allowed fire to retain its natural role. And so if you look at the severity maps of those two fires, it's very impressive on a very large scale. They were big events and they were very close, not perfect, but they're very close to what we think the historical fire behavior would have been. 
That was Don Falk, a professor in the School of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona. When fire danger is at its highest, we often hear officials say that fires are not allowed. But what's lacking in those announcements is what to do if you want to enjoy the outdoors when a fire ban is in place. We talked with Dana Davis, the co-owner of Tucson's outdoor store, Summit Hut. She's an avid camper, even at times when a campfire isn't possible. We've had a lot of attention recently, of course, on fires and human-caused fires, and the monsoon has sort of started. But a lot of people want to camp, especially locally, go up high into the mountains to get out of the heat. But it's not a good time for a fire. How do we camp without fires? Camping without a fire, you just have to really take into a couple considerations to make sure that you're well prepared and don't end up in the dark, cold, no light, and hungry, which certainly I'm sure has been some people's um, experiences at some point in the past. But um, for us, I would say that uh, one of the things to first and foremost consider is the food situation. Um, oftentimes people use fires to cook hot dogs or have a variety of other things. It's also a common dessert to have uh, s'mores and lots of fun. And of course that is great, but um, I have had times when I thought that even if there was an opportunity to have a fire, either the rain or other things have kind of thwarted our efforts. So I uh, recommend, you know, you can still use uh, gas or propane stoves most oftentimes, even with fire restrictions. You should definitely always call in advance to find out for certain um, exactly what may be restricted in those areas. So if you are allowed to have the stoves, you know, you can cook quite a bit over a stove. You can get pretty creative. I know I've done everything from you know, frying uh, bagels in butter and, and things along those lines in a frying pan to doing some simple freeze-dried food with uh, adding water. And um, of course, you know, that always tastes amazing when you're out hiking and camping. Maybe not at home quite as much, but when you're out and about, it is always pretty tasty. I know they've even now got uh, propane-powered ovens. We got one and you know, warm brownies uh, really changes the whole camping experience if you're car camping. Okay. Now, I do not own one of those, and I am now quite jealous of uh, of your experience. And I certainly hope none of my friends that I go with hear this radio show, so otherwise I might have to go get one of those. You know, you can always pack in a variety of meals without even having a stove at all if you want. I tend to be a little bit lazier, so I tend not to do quite a bit, as much advanced preparation. Um, one of our creative meals that I've done is, you know, going to the store and just got pre-made meals, especially if they were already pre-cooked, then you could just throw them on a double burner stove and voila, dinner was done. The big fires up in Flagstaff, one of them was caused by someone burning used toilet paper. Run through, if you will, what we're supposed to do, because obviously burning it is a bad idea, as we've seen up in Flagstaff with tens of thousands of acres and buildings burned. Absolutely. And I think one of the largest forest fires in the last couple of years in California also started as a result of burning toilet paper. 
There's a couple options, but the best thing to do would be to pack it out, honestly. So we sell things called blue bags. So you could also create something on your own. You just end up bringing a bag, you, you know, you can dig a little ditch or just, you know, open the bag basically, and you just squat, seal it up. And it ends up actually being pretty durable bag. So obviously you want to make sure you take that into account, throw your toilet paper in there and you're ready to go. So that is the best leave no trace way of camping. Some people will use a trowel and then they'll go and then dig a hole and then end up as long as you dig it you know, far enough away from water, you can then end up burying your feces and then um, pack out the toilet paper. When it comes to camping, if you do accidentally set a fire, obviously, you know, water puts it out. But is there anything that is out there product wise that helps you contain a fire or something that could help you put out a fire so that when you go to bed, you know it's out? Oh, that is such a good question. Um, as for an actual item to spray on a fire, I am not aware of something. So I'm sure there's something out there and hopefully you'll get lots of listeners that tell you all about it. I know for certain that if you did have a fire and you're, you're allowed to have one, certainly making sure that there's no debris or um, other materials around. Be sure to look up as well, because sometimes there could be low hanging branches or trees and you certainly don't want the sparks to you know, float up and end up catching something else on fire. You don't want to put on long burning logs towards the end of the evening at night. Certainly you do use quite a bit of water to put the fire out. Oftentimes I will end up pouring water on the fire and then I use, uh, a stick or something of the sort to spread the ash out and spread the coals out just to try to um, make it go out a little bit earlier and not burn quite as long. I know when I was learning to camp, the, the rule was always, you know, douse it with water, stir it, and then see if you could put your hand over it. And if you could put your hand over it, it was probably pretty close to cold out. Yes. And it's definitely a tougher um, thing to do in Arizona just because of sometimes the lack of water. Even in some campsites, there might not be running water or, or water available. And then you have to certainly plan for, you know, the water to help put the fire out in the evenings as well. But if you have the water, certainly don't skimp on it and make sure you uh, get it out. So we've talked about cooking without a fire, but fire also provides warmth. So how do you stay warm without a fire? Probably a big thing in our area is that it gets a lot cooler at night than you would anticipate. If you're looking at the weather temperatures, oftentimes you're like, oh, it's going to be warm out. I just need a sheet. It doesn't matter if there's not a fire, it'll be fine. And it might be fine, you know, in the evening initially, but then later on you might end up feeling cooler for sure. So be sure to bring some extra clothes, make sure you're going to end up being comfortable. If you're sleeping, make sure that you're, um, you know, on a sleeping pad that's uh, appropriate for keeping you insulated from the ground, because even in warmer months, the ground can suck that uh, warm temperatures right out of your body, along with um, a proper sleeping bag. Uh, the other thing too for fireless camping is make sure you have enough lighting. Uh, it's unusual 
it's easy to forget how much you end up using the firelight to get around camp or see, you know, lighting around. And so certainly there's some fun lighting out there that's not heavy and that doesn't take up too much space. I often use things called uh, the Lucy lanterns, which are inflatable solar lanterns. So they end up being super compact, really lightweight, but you can blow them up and they end up being fantastic lanterns around camp so you can see everything pretty well. You want to have headlamps and then also there's a wide variety of really fun lighting things that you can you know drape some string lights um, that are uh, rechargeable string lights that can go over picnic tables or tents or things along those lines. Um, even when you are allowed to have fires, <laughs> these lightings can be really helpful in not stubbing your toes on tent stakes or other things as well. That was Dana Davis, co-owner of Summit Hut and a frequent camper. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're looking at how to prevent and put out human-caused wildfires. Once a fire gets started, there are a variety of tools that can be used to stop it. They range from the Pulaski, which is an axe with vertical and horizontal blades, to massive aircraft that drop lines of fire retardant. When it comes to those tankers, some of the largest belong to Albuquerque-based 10-tanker air carrier. The orange and white DC-10s are becoming synonymous with large fires in the West. The jetliners dropped nearly 450,000 gallons of the bright red fire retardant around the Bighorn and Tortolita fires near Tucson in 2020. They also helped fight the pipeline fire in Flagstaff earlier this month. As of May, 10 Tanker has dropped more than 1.5 million gallons of fire retardant this year on 151 missions. John Gould is 10 Tanker's president. When we spoke with him last year, he said that when the company got its first contract in 2006, they were not what fire managers were used to when it came to air attack. Absolutely a new concept, I think, in terms of large air tankers. How much we would carry is so much more than anybody else, anybody conceived of at the time. So it's been a long road to get acceptance in the community for something that is so different than what they've seen before. Uh, but I think we finally have, you know, I think the, certainly the firefighters on the ground are happy when they see a DC-10 roll overhead. They know they can get a lot of work out of it. And the reality, Chris, is that economies of scale make a difference, whether you're hauling stuff in a truck uh, across country or, or you're hauling retardant to a fire. What are the advantages of using big planes? DC-10s are big planes instead of the smaller tankers that a lot of people, including it sounds like fire managers and firefighters, are used to seeing. Again, the advantages are economies of scale. If you're a firefighter and you're on the ground with uh, you know, a 10-acre fire and it's noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you know you've got the burning period in front of you, you want that thing out as fast as possible. Can't afford to have that thing going strong at four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon. We bring enough retardant to the party to help those guys get up the line, you know, secure the tail, get around the fire, and uh, hopefully keep that from getting a big head going. And so there's a lot of tools in the toolbox available for them. So, uh, but I think that we can help guys um, get around the fire more quickly and keep those small fires from becoming giant fires that are the ones we see in the news every day. One of the other advantages we have are some really great tanks. 
there are good lines and bad lines that come out of those airplanes. And uh, we, we drop a really nice effective line that can, depending on the coverage level we have, we can get a mile of line in if it's grass fire. I'm sure some, you know, will look at a DC-10 and say, it's too big to be precision and get into canyons. We saw you guys in canyons here in Tucson, so obviously precision is not a problem. One of the misconceptions is that we don't have an airplane that, that can fly in anything but flat, open country where we can see what's coming. And, and actually, the opposite is true. Um, when McDonnell Douglas built this airplane, they built, number one, a really stout airplane. It's a great airplane for the job that it's doing. We have three engines, each of them producing over 50,000 pounds of thrust. We take off you know, with 400,000 pounds in an airplane that is built, designed to take off with 575,000 pounds of stuff in it. When we get to the fire, we're light. It's very maneuverable. And with uh, the full flaps and slats, we can set up runs that go down a very steep hill, keep our speed down low enough to have an effective drop, and then have all the power we need to get back out of it. DC-10s are big planes. Uh, they, they take a lot of fuel. 9,400 gallons of retardant takes time to pump in. I know it doesn't take much time to get it out. So what is the turnaround time from the time the plane drops to the time 10 tanker can be back? At the air tanker bases, they got real pros working there. Whether it's a 3,000-gallon airplane or a DC-10, they get all of us in and out pretty quickly. So for us, They'll get the tanks filled in less than 15 minutes with retardant. It's usually, you know, a 25-minute turnaround if we have to get fuel. As long as the air tanker base is ready to accept us when we get in, and usually they are. Right now, you have, I understand, on-call planes and then some tankers that are under contract. We have exclusive use contracts with the U.S. Forest Service, and then we have planes that they have on what they call call-when-needed contracts. So with those call when needed contracts, they'll pick us up when they need us, which usually means later in the summer when the fires really get going. We also have the same type of contract with Cal Fire. California's got a lot of, a lot of fire issues. So whenever it gets going, we usually find our airplanes down there. When it comes to the economies of scale you mentioned, obviously the DC-10 is a big plane. It takes more fuel. It, it takes more people to fly. You, know, you have a three-person flight crew. Does that drive up the cost at all, or is that equalized by how much you can drop in a single run? It costs us a lot to fly, but that's not what uh, the firefighters on the ground or the fire managers are worried about. I mean, they're concerned about costs. But what we do is, you know, we make it up when we, when we bring a lot to the fire. So we know, based on what we see with results or what the Forest Service tells us, we can drop a retardant at half the cost of any other airplane out there. We're expensive to get the airplane there. It burns a lot of fuel, as you say, uh, but it gets a lot of work done. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Happy to do it. That was John Gould with 10 Tanker. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.
Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.